welcome to the Radiant Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Chapman, and if there's one thing I believe, it's that you're capable of making your dreams a reality and that the world needs you to be living out your purpose. One thing I love is to chat with people doing impactful work in hopes that we can all learn something from the conversation. Not to mention, we get to apply all of that wisdom to our own journey. Each week, you will hear just that here at the Radiant Podcast. So without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Radiant Podcast. And this week, we have my friend Michelle Kashat joining us. I am so excited to have her on. And you guys are going to learn so much from this conversation. Hey, Michelle. Hey there, Kelsey. I am, let me just say, I know I'm already talking over you. Can you believe that? You're the host <laughs> and I'm talking over you. I have been looking forward to this for quite some time because we have a lot of mutual friends and connections, but we've never met. Well, I, I too have been very excited because I remember the first time I heard your story. I remember where I was. I think I was in my bathroom doing my makeup, listening to you on typology. And then you reminded me that basically the person who makes us both look great on camera we worked we worked with (laughs) yes in fact he's the one that introduced me to you he told me all about you and showed me your website and I've become a stalker of your sense so hey I mean it's about time that we met each other the feelings mutual and I'm just glad we can continue the conversation off the air (laughs) in Colorado so yes I I would love I know a little bit about you but I would love the radiant listeners to get to know your full story um, who you are what you do and what you have going on in your world All right. Well, let me give you a quick glimpse of who I am today. Just so people know, I am a wife and a mom of six kids ages. Are you ready for this? Take a deep breath. 27, 26, 22, 13, 12, 12, four boys, two girls. Yes, I know. (laughs) I'm an author. I have my third book coming out in just about five weeks. I'm a speaker. I'm a consultant and coach. I basically do tons of communications consulting, whether I'm training speakers on large platforms or uh, coaching, doing executive style coaching for CEOs and business owners and sales team leaders and things like that. Uh, So that is kind of me in a nutshell now, which all sounds nice and pretty, but that's not really my story. Yeah. So let's go back in time a little bit uh, to get to where I ended up here, because I know some of you have already picked up on the fact that I have a bit of a speech disability. There's a story behind that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here going, how far back do I go? Uh, it's so interesting when we see a photo of someone on Instagram or Facebook, everything looks so perfect and people have no idea the twists and the turns and the roadblocks and detours that happened in the decades leading up to that. Um, for the most part, the first half of my life was fairly you know, fairly typical, fairly average, normal. I grew up as a woman uh, whose parents came to faith when I was about one year old. So even though faith was something brand new to my parents, they had had no exposure to it before, uh, they accepted Jesus and decided to follow Jesus when I was just a little under a year old. So I've never, I don't remember life without faith being a substantial part of it. Faith has always been part of my life. And, uh, and I was one of those kids that just loved God with everything in me. I just believed in him a hundred percent. I mean, I talked to him like he was right next to me. If uh, I was missing my blue crayon, I prayed that he would help me find it, you know, (laughs) all those kinds of things. And it all seemed to be going perfectly fine until uh, I was in my twenties, married to a pastor, had my first child and found myself 
unexpectedly divorced and a single mom of a one and a half year old at the age of 27. Wow. And all of a sudden, this kind of perfect life that I had dreamed of and prayed for and worked toward completely fell apart. Uh, I did not expect to be, I had just moved to Colorado 12 months before, so I didn't expect to be living oh my gosh. in Denver, Denver, Colorado, a thousand miles from family and friends with a one and a half year old completely alone and having to rebuild my life. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yes, exactly. I, I mean, what do you do? And when you kind of grow up thinking that if you make all the right choices and do all the right things, life is going to go good. When you believe that kind of transactional um, behavior, behavior, good behavior and good faith leads to a good life. When you have that kind of um, math in your head when it comes to faith and it doesn't work out, it wrecks you. It destroys everything. Well, and being uh, across the country is hard enough from your family and to be, yeah. you know, having have a one and a half year old trying to start over. Oh, my gosh. So, OK, I didn't yes, mean to interrupt exactly. you. So, Just wow. I know. A lot of people don't know that piece of my story because it's, you know, 20 some years ago now. Yeah. But it's a big part of my story because it's when it's when the rug first got pulled out from under me. Uh, and. I had gotten my bachelor's degree in nursing. I had a, a license in nursing. I was an RN. This is my life. But when I found myself a single mom at 27, guess what? You can't work, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour shifts overnight with a, basically a newborn and no family to help you uh, get through that. So I had to reinvent myself. That's when I first started um doing sales and uh, working in computer networking. And I mean, talk about a complete shift, a complete change. But that's when I first started to have to think of life outside the box. Well, eventually I worked through that, learned a lot of lessons. I uh, married the man I'm married to now. His name's Troy. He had two boys from a previous marriage. I had my one boy. So we did that wonderful, easy peasy thing called blended family. And it's just like the movies, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. And then we had the whole blended family drama. So here I am, you know, 30 years old with two stepsons, a son, trying to do the second marriage, trying to make it look like the perfect family I dreamed of. And that didn't go well at all. Whenever we try to force our life to look a certain way, we end up becoming uh, what we affectionately call a control freak, which is does not make your family a very big fan of you. So <laughs> those are some tough years of trying to navigate blended family. Uh, I started a couple different businesses. My husband started his own business. So we really had that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and in the middle of that, about the time that we thought we were getting over the hump and really trying to find our stride, it was right around 10 years into the marriage. Uh, I, I received a phone call on a Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2010. So about nine years ago right now, it was an ordinary Tuesday. I had just sent my boys to school. My husband was on his way to work and my phone rang and I picked it up like it was no big deal. I'll never forget where I was standing when I answered the phone. And on the end, other end was my doctor. I had gone to see him the week before because I had an ulcer on my tongue. It just wouldn't heal. So we were just trying to find the right antibiotic or ointment to get it to heal. Well, he called me that Tuesday to let me know that they had discovered that this tiny little ulcer on my tongue wasn't an ulcer at all. It was cancer. I had squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue, which is at that point in time, something I had no idea even existed. I didn't know you could get cancer on your tongue. Uh, besides that, I was 39 years old, a wife and a mom. I made my living as a communicator and an author and a speaker. 
uh, and and I wasn't a smoker, wasn't a heavy drinker. I mean, I had none of the risk factors. Yeah. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. This isn't supposed to happen. This happens to other people. This doesn't happen to me. And in that moment, at 39, I had to come face to face with the reality that I'm not going to live forever. We had no idea at that point uh, how extensive it was, what the implications were. I mean, it was talk about rocking my world. You know, I'd already put my life together once. Was I going to have to do it a second time? Uh, so you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> Every, wow. Everything turned upside down. Well, over the next couple weeks, uh, after PET scans and doctor's appointments and biopsies and all those things, I ended up finding out it was a best case scenario when it comes to cancer. In other words, they told me we caught it early. Uh, you know, we were going to do surgery. They did a, a short surgery. It was only like an hour or so where they cut out a small portion of my tongue. It was painful. Obviously it took me a couple weeks to recover, but they told me on the other side of it, we got it all. Uh, you don't have to worry about this again. It's over. So I put cancer on the shelf and never expected to see it. And that's where we'd like this story to end, right? Totally. But there's a little bit more, huh? There's more. Well, about... Uh, about eight, 10 months after I was diagnosed with cancer, I got another phone call. However, this one wasn't a doctor. It was from uh, a relative who told us about three kids who had uh, an addict for a mother and they needed a place to live, a place to call home. And so the question was asked of my husband, will you take them? These were twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old. At that time, we had three boys, twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old, two girls and a boy. Now, let me tell you, at that point, two of our boys were out of high school. One was getting ready to drive a car. We were on the verge of empty nest. And let me just tell you, I love being a mama, but after getting through adolescence with three boys, um, when they said, will you take three more? It was like, hey, would you like, I know you just finished running a marathon, but how about we do it a second time? And my, <laughs> my thought was, um, no, thank you. I'm all full up over here. Don't need that. I mean, it's the last thing that I wanted to do. On top of that, I had just gone through cancer eight months before. Was it really a wise decision to take them through more kids? Uh, you know, long story short, uh, over the next 24 hours, God really worked on our hearts. And we both realized that we had been prepared for this that uh, these were three kids who knew what it was like to wake up every day fearing for their lives and unsure of, of their safety, of their future. They had lived in constant crisis and insecurity every day of their four and five-year-old lives. Um, my tiny experience with cancer had taught me, hey, this is what it feels like to be afraid. This is what it feels like to not know what tomorrow is going to look like. Maybe you could have something to offer these little ones. Wow. Maybe now you're ready to handle it. And so 24 hours later, we drove to a different state and picked up three preschoolers uh, in a tiny little car wow. <laughs> with borrowed car seats and brought them home. Oh, my gosh. So instant new family. I mean, you've got instant, three kids yes. already. And then... So once again, rug gets pulled out from under. It's all a very good thing. But let me tell you, when you have kids that have gone through significant trauma and abuse, neglect, it impacts everyone. Yeah. Oh, I can't. And trauma. I mean, yeah. Trauma, PTSD, you name it. We deal with it. Totally. And at such a young age, too, they're probably unaware 
fully of how it's impacting them. And you're having to try to kind of identify what's really going on in situations. I mean, it's all new. You had just gotten past cancer and now you're navigating three preschoolers who (laughs) are also totally upending their lives and starting over. So from there, what happened? Oh, well, uh, (laughs) let me tell you that those first few years with these three little ones, remember, we still had a teenager at home. And even though my older two boys were out of high school, you don't stop parenting when your kids are 18, 19 and 20. Right. So our hands were full. And both my husband and I remember we're still working full time and I'm still making my living as an author and a speaker and a communications consultant. Right. So there's a lot going on. On top of that, I'm dealing with my own fallout from a cancer diagnosis. So that fear thing is a bigger deal than you realize. You don't really know how you're going to react to a diagnosis like that till you actually live it. So I'm dealing with some ongoing fear of what if it comes back. On top of that, we have these three kids who are, you know, they just, they were just removed from the only mother they'd ever known and placed in our house. And they have all kinds of PTSD and trauma that they can't even verbalize at this point. So yeah, imagine those next three years were, I mean, we were taking it a minute at a time. It was like one minute at a time. And about the time that we thought we had gotten over the hump and things were going to turn around and get better, uh, I found another sore, another ulcer-like area on my tongue. This would have been, oh goodness, uh, January of 2014. And I went into the doctor and got another biopsy. And, and she called me back and said, I'm sorry, Michelle, but the cancer is back. Oh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So you what? can believe that. So yeah. now we're three and a half years. This is 2014. So three and a half years from the initial diagnosis. At this point, the kids have been with us for about three years. Uh, and, and here we go again. This time it was a little bit more advanced. Uh, they did a four hour surgery where they removed one third of my tongue. Uh, in to help make up for what they cut out, they did something that's called a biological skin graft. So they used uh, the the sterilized bladder of a pig, if you can believe that. Yes, a pig bladder, which sounds horrific, but it's a wonderful way for your tongue to kind of shape itself yeah. around this graft, right? And besides, I told my husband, I'm like, dude, I've got basically a slab of bacon in my mouth 24-7. Who's winning here, <laughs> That's right? the way to look at it. That's amazing. <laughs> so they did this. So they did this graph. It took me about four to six weeks to recover. Eight weeks after the surgery, I was back speaking again, traveling, speaking at a conference. I ran a half marathon. I mean, I was just, you can see, I have this innate sense of determination and drive and I'm an achiever. I'm a hard worker. So we're not going to let this get the best of us, right? Perseverance, work hard. Uh, And I was right back out there doing it. Uh, Shortly after that, I was doing a national, actually it's an international podcast called This Is Your Life with Michael Hyatt. I was his co-host for two years. I went on tour with Women of Faith as their MC for an entire season. So, you know, all these things kept happening, but uh, I just kept pulling myself up by my bootstraps. Let's keep going. Persevere. Let's go. In the middle of that tour with Women of Faith, um, my dad, who has been one of the biggest uh, spiritual influences of my life, died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, And eight weeks after 
he died eight weeks after we buried him. I got another phone call from the doctor and was told that the cancer was back for a third time. Oh my gosh. And when was was this? November, 2014. Oh my gosh. So all within the span of one year, you had surgery for round two, lost your dad and went through round three. Yes. Okay. So from there, rug being pulled out from you, we're going to talk about this theme of the rug being pulled out, but we're we're going to get back to all of that. But basically with this third diagnosis, there were no promises of a cure anymore. There was no smiling faces on the doctor's faces. Uh, They gave me two weeks to get my affairs in order. Uh, I recorded the last of my podcast, recorded my first book on audio, and then I flew home. And two days before Thanksgiving, I went into the hospital. So again, that Thanksgiving week is a little bit of a loaded one for me. Two days before Thanksgiving, I went to the hospital. They did a nine-hour surgery where they removed two-thirds of my tongue. Unfortunately, because they had to remove so much, there was no way to do a, a graft like we did before this time they had to cut open my arm from wrist to elbow and cut open my leg as well as my neck about six to eight inches on my neck to remove tissue and things to try to rebuild some semblance of a tongue that's functional. Um, But in short, you know, they took out that two thirds of the tongue. So uh, now I have a tongue that uh, doesn't really work. Right. So at the end I was in the hospital for the week, uh, ICU for two days trying to get me to a place where I could heal on my own. They sent me home for four days at the, or for four weeks. At the end of that four weeks, they started very intensive chemotherapy and external radiation on the head and neck area. Uh, and just so you know, radiation, when you start burning the face and the neck area, it's in completely different than radiation on other parts of the body. Okay. So uh, over the next couple of months, basically, they threw everything but the kitchen sink at me and and told me quite literally, uh, we have to take you to the edge of death in order to hopefully save your life. Oh, my gosh. So when all was said and done, I had scars literally all over my body, face, neck, arm, leg. I had a feeding tube for five months, a tracheostomy for two to keep me from choking. I took all my nourishment through a tube in my stomach because there were so many burns from my nose to my chest that I couldn't swallow or eat or anything. There was about, I can't remember, there was several weeks where my vocal cords were so burned, we weren't even sure I'd be able to talk again, ever. Uh, And so here I am, right, at the end of all of this, and, uh, and basically I had no fight left. Yeah. I can imagine you were tired. I'm done. Right? Yeah. I'm done. Not to mention there's multiple, uh, implications. First of all, the physical suffering. I didn't know a human could go through that amount of physical pain and still survive. Wow. Uh, I had no concept of true physical suffering until I went through this. I was for six months. I was on fentanyl. We've heard lots of news about oh, fentanyl yeah. lately. For six months, I was on fentanyl 24 hours a day just to keep me alive because of that was how bad the pain was. The fentanyl wasn't strong enough. So on top of that, they gave me liquid morphine to take the edge off. Oh, my gosh. And were you still in pain with those? Yeah, I was still writhing in pain. There were days where I was literally rolling around on the couch because I I was in so much pain. (sighs) Uh, So you had the physical implications. Then you have the the permanent functional disabilities and losses. So I've lost, I probably have about 20% of my taste left and that's for the rest of my life. So when we have a birthday cake on my kid's birthday, I can't taste it. Yeah. Uh, 
Eating is very hard for me. It takes me about twice as long to eat half the amount of food as everybody else. Obviously, as you can hear in my voice, speaking is very difficult. I have worked with a speech therapist and have intentionally done podcasts and recordings ongoing to maintain my speech. If I stop talking, I will lose it. So you have all of those implications, not to mention personal things like, uh, you know, just my enjoyment of life and eating, my ability to kiss my own husband, you know, all of those different things are massive losses. But I haven't even talked about the spiritual implications and the emotional fallout. Oh, my gosh. Right. So when you go through some kind of medical trauma like this. I, I never used to understand when people talked about PTSD because I thought they were just not tough enough. <laughs> and now I understand, oh, that's kind of a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Absolutely. And I've had some great experience at the dentist office where I'm in an all out panic because somebody's putting their hands in their mouth, my mouth. Yeah. Um, so dealing with the emotions of that, the PTSD, the losses, uh, and, um, you know, my body doesn't work this anymore, but then spiritually, what do I do with this? I have prayed to God my entire life. I went through cancer three times. I even took in three kids for crying out loud, right? Come on. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so why pray if God doesn't listen? Uh, that's a why? very real question. And I think we're going to have a lot question. of listeners very much relating to that, that pain point. Mm-hmm. So why pray? And how can God, is it possible to still believe in a good God when he allows so much suffering and so many things to happen? Did he not answer my prayers because he's mad at me? Is he disappointed me? Did I do something wrong? Is this my fault? Is this a punishment? Uh, And there were times during this very dark season over the last, you know, basically I've spent the last four and a half years trying to come back to life. And it's taken me every bit of that four years to get to a place where I can work and do what I do. Uh, Why didn't he intervene? Why doesn't he always bring relief? Uh, What does this say about who he is? Can I trust that he loves me? Can I trust that he's here even though I don't feel him? You know, all of those really important questions. And, you know, those are the kinds of questions that people ask when they're trying to find meaning in life. And I think believers, people who believe in God ask it, but also people who are seeking that don't know what they believe. They're the same questions. I, suffering is the great leveler, right? Yeah. It kind of puts us all on the same plane. And we have to get down to the very basic questions. Who is God? Is he real? And can I trust him? Man, I mean, so my question would be, where? how long did it, I mean, I can imagine you're even still wrestling with that, but how long did it take for you to feel like you had even an answer to that or like you could trust God? I mean, I can imagine with this theme of feeling like the rug's been pulled out from under you, does it, has there been a point or is it still at a place where you're in constant fear of like, what's the next rug? I thought this was as worse as it could get (laughs) or as bad as it could get, you know? True, true. And there is, there was definitely a sense of that over, and I still have days where that hits me. I'm like, okay, when is the, when is the other shoe going to drop? Uh, can I trust if I'm having a good day? Can I trust it? Can I, yeah. can I actually be happy or am I going to be surprised by something else? I mean, all of those questions I think are very human and very real. Uh, and part, in answer to your first question, when did I finally get to a place where I answered it? Well, yeah, I wish there was like a point on the map. I think this is an ongoing journey like any relationship. But 
what I had to do, and I'm definitely at a place of absolute trust in God. I do trust in him. Do I always feel it? No, there are days I'm scared. Yeah. There are days I'm overwhelmed, but do I trust him? Yes. But I trust him based on the facts. I trust him based on his history, not on my emotions of the moment or the circumstances of the moment. Man, I mean, easier said than done. You had to live yeah. that to get there. Yes. I mean, wow. And, that, and that's what it is, right? We have to live it. We have to wrestle with it over and over again. Unfortunately, what happens is we feel guilty for having the questions. Yeah. And so we don't allow ourselves to ask them. And what's so beautiful is what I have experienced is God saying, I want you to ask the questions. I can handle it. You have to acknowledge the truth. You have to tell the truth about what you're wrestling with, Michelle. Until you acknowledge it, it's going to haunt you. I, but if you acknowledge your doubts and you walk them out, it's going to lead you to me. I 100% agree. And I think that's been a, a, a pretty front and center conversation with my friend group in the last few years. And I think, I think a huge part of us moving to Colorado, you know, my husband really needed a lot of space to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. Kind of as a seven, I don't operate from major, um, I, I have during seasons of my life. I mean, my whole high school career would be probably identified more like a one. I probably would have thought I was a one. So I thought way uh -huh. more in terms of like, oh, don't be bad. Don't ask questions that you mm -hmm. shouldn't ask. But as an adult, I'm more prone to be okay coloring outside the lines to be like, God's a big boy. He can handle that. But I think even moving to Colorado was crucial in my husband's ability to have a safe space amongst a group of friends to ask those questions and totally kind of unravel everything in order to rebuild it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a two with a one wing. So I have that, that critical voice in my head pretty strong. Right. And so for a long time, I'm like, wow, you must, you, you must not have very big faith if you have questions, if you doubt, if you wrestle, something's wrong with you. And I realized that that, you know, that was the wrong way to think about it, quite frankly. There wasn't something wrong with me. Life was hard. I was having yeah. a natural human response to intense suffering. And it's valid. And what I discovered is God's grace met me there. He didn't pull away because of my questions. He didn't shut down and shun me because of my doubts. He actually said, oh, good. I'm glad you're telling the truth. Now I can work with that. Oh, my gosh. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent yet, but I'm sure as a parent, if we look at God as like the ultimate parent, as a parent, you don't shame your child for asking questions. Mm -hmm. And so why do we carry that over to our relationship with God? But we do. We do. We do. And we do. so what would you say to the listener who really struggles with feeling guilty for asking questions? Like they've never given themselves permission to ask those hard questions and to say, God, like, this is not how I thought it was going to go. Yeah. Well, for me, I had to really get down and dirty with the facts, right? So the Bible was big for me. I'm like, okay, I've been raised in a church, but I'm going to go back and dig through from, from page one to the last page and see, the, see what I see about God's character there. And the more that I dug through it, the more that I saw God again and again and again, making space for the messy, complicated, broken, question-asking people. He had very little tolerance for the ones that thought they were righteous. Yeah. He had a whole lot of space and grace and love for people who knew they were messed up. And when I started to see that over and over and over again, I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> it is everywhere. When I started to see that, 
that's and I realized that some of the lies I was believing, some of them came from external sources growing up, you know, people who legalistic voices that had a lot of shame attached to them. But some of it was me buying into the lie, right? It was just my own, my own shame voices talking to me. And I had to replace those with actual facts. And when I really got down and dirty with what the Bible said and looked at it clearly and saw the way that God always God always pushed toward the people that were most desperate. I mean, he always did. That meant I could tell the truth about where I was struggling. I said, I mean, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is I absolutely, Jesus is on the cross and there's two criminals on either side, one on either side of him, right? And they're a mess. Talk about hot mess. They were murderers. They were deceitful. They had caused all kinds of problems. They were, I mean, lawbreakers. They were bad dudes (laughs) next to Jesus. And one of them is bitter and angry and making fun of Jesus. The other one said, you know, don't you have any fear of God? And he looked at Jesus and all he did, okay, he's hanging on the cross dying. He looked at Jesus and all he did was say, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's all he said. He didn't have time to clean up his act or memorize scripture or sign up for a Bible study. He didn't have time to go to an AA group or get his act together or apologize to all the people he had done wrong. All he had time to do, all he could do was look at Jesus and say, don't forget me. Yeah. And that was enough belief in that moment for Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And when I think of that moment and I sit there and think of all of my tireless efforts in 48 years to try to impress God with my goodness, (laughs) I'm like, wow. And all I had to do was say, Jesus, just remember me. Don't forget me. Man, man, I mean, you can preach. I'm like, (laughs) oh man, I am being blessed by this conversation because even even that, you know, snippet of what you just said, I mean, I can be a compulsive doer. I just want to yes. do, 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 do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, accomplish, achieve, do more, um, live in the fast lane. And man, I mean, you're so right. You're so Right. What happened? So both of us are women who lead in our spaces, right? And so, and sometimes we forget, we try to compartmentalize faith and work, you know, our professional lives, our personal lives. The thing is, is that a leader, as a woman who still operates as a communications consultant and as a leadership development coach and everything else, I finally understand that when I get anchored in this grace, when I get so anchored in God's unflinching affection for and relentless presence with me i am so much better to so much more able to lead the people around me and coach the people around me with excellence and enthusiasm and authenticity because i'm not scrambling for my identity anymore i am so secure yeah man so so kind of coming out of your healing journey, I mean, like mm-hmm. how long did your healing process take? When did you start writing this book? I mean, I want to hear more about Relentless, the unshakable presence of a God who never leaves. I mean, you, you're probably living out these lessons as you write it, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's been, uh, goodness, as we're recording this, we are at almost the five-year mark from that third diagnosis, almost, Uh, but about four and a half years, a little bit more than four years since I finished treatment and everything. So it, you know, I live with tons of fallout physically from what I experienced. So the radiation, the chemo, everything really did a number on me. And so, uh, you know, I used to be this half marathon runner. I used to do triathlons. Uh, I really struggled to 
just physically function every day. My thyroid no longer works. Some of my other systems don't work very well. Uh, so I definitely have some uh, physical capacity problems after that. At the same time, like you, I'm a doer. So my half capacity is probably more than some people's full <laughs> capacity. <laughs> so I'm still working and everything. Um, but you know, there was a physical recovery, which definitely took a full two years before I could really work full time again. Uh, it took a long, long time. Uh, and even now, I, I can't work the same hours I did before. I'm always having to check in with my body. And if I, I take a nap almost every day and I'm really careful with what I eat and everything else. Uh, but emotionally, spiritually, uh, that's definitely ongoing. You know, I have a wonderful Christian therapist and helping me work through some of the medical trauma and the fallout of all of that. But what I learned through the whole process is this crisis it was the cumulative effect of multiple crises over 20 years that finally got the best of me. It was not just cancer. It was the ministry loss, the divorce and single parenthood, the step family, blended family, the taking in three kids with their own PTSD and trauma and cancer three times and losing my dad in the middle of all of that. That's a lot. And basically it, it, it wrecked my faith and it wrecked my, me emotionally as well. And so what's happened over the last four years is I had to go back to the beginning and work through multiple things, not just one. It wasn't just cancer. But the beauty of that is when you when you flatten a building, when you tear the whole down thing down and you get the ground flat again, you have a really good surface to build something new on. Yeah. And that's precisely what has happened with my faith. I, you know, people call it the de deconstruction of their faith. Well, deconstruction sounds too nice to me. It was really the destruction. It was like <laughs> the destroying of some bad theology and rebuilding of good, solid theology based on the love and affection and grace of a God who does not love us because we deserve it. He loves us because he can't help it. Man, man. So would you say as probably, you know, a high level doer your entire life, this experience with like your third round of cancer and really having to slow down, is that, do you think in that slowing down is where you had to deal with kind of even starting back to your twenties? I mean, I, that, yes. that's a lesson for me to kind of like, wow, like, and I, I see this in myself in the sense that I don't slow down enough to feel some of those harder things sometimes. And mm -hmm. it's only when I'm made to slow down. Not that, you know, I think that God can use anything for his good. I'm not saying like he caused this, you yes. know, I'm not, I don't mm -hmm. theologically believe that. But um, do you think in the slowing down, I mean, that's what gave you space to start figuring out kind of the fallout of even stuff that happened 20 years ago? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Uh, being a two, I'm far more comfortable with listening to other people's stories and helping people with their feelings rather than dealing with my own. Yeah. And so I would have just kept helping other people and ignoring my own pain until something finally happened where I couldn't ignore it anymore. So and simply PTSD is your body saying, there's something that is causing this pain. I need you to pay attention to it. And that's what happened with me. A lot of the um, emotional struggles and difficulties in these years of trying to rebuild my life and faith uh, is I had to slow down and go back to the beginning and unravel all of it. And that's really what I do in Relentless is walk through. So I have two stories layered here. The first story is my story from beginning till now. 
of some of my wrestling, my faith journey, right? But then there's the other story, and that's the gospel story from Genesis to Revelation. And when I look at my story uh, laid over the gospel story, I see how from the very beginning, uh, God's agenda was not just redemption, it was connection. Redemption was the means to relationship, but the ultimate goal all along is that God wanted to be with us. That blows my mind. What's so interesting from a psychology standpoint is if you ask anybody what the secret to healing from trauma is, the one secret to healing from trauma, the biggest predictor of healing after some kind of significant trauma is the presence of one stable, significant other. Wow. Which, what do you think God is, right? Emmanuel is God coming in the flesh to enter into the human experience. So if we needed healing from trauma, if we want to heal from any kind of pain or loss, we need relationship. Well, in the whole gospel narrative, it is about God recognizing the trauma on humanity and sending himself to be the stable, significant other to heal the trauma in the human heart. Oh, man, that makes me cry. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And it's everywhere. And that's been, you know, honestly, that's what's brought healing to me. It's not, God can't tell me that I'm never going to have cancer again. I might. I mean, the chances are high. Nobody can promise me that everything's going to go okay with my kids. Nobody can promise me that my life is going to be happy sailing from here out. But when I look at the gospel, when I lay the gospel in front of me, and I realize that God recognized the trauma that was wrecking us. He saw it. He knew that trauma had destroyed us generation after generation after generation. And he said, I'm not willing to stand back and let that continue. So I'm going to send myself. I'm going to push so far into their experience that they know that they're not alone. And he didn't have to do that. And that's what the gospel is all about. Wow. I could just listen to you share on this topic specifically all day long because, you know, man, that just highlights the goodness and the kindness of God in the hardest, messiest places of our life. So in sharing your story, what are some of the stories you've heard of people kind of learning from kind of this message of a relentless God who never leaves? I mean, I'm sure you've had people come to you with their stories of trauma as well. What has this kind of season of releasing this message into the world taught you? I know the book's, you know, soon to be out by the time this episode airs, it'll probably be out right around this time. But I know you're having, I know you, before you probably were even writing this, you've been having this conversation. So. Yes, absolutely. I I mean, I'm having this conversation with my three sweet, you know, children who were, you know, have experienced so much trauma to let them know we're not going to pull away just because you behave badly. You know, we are going to push in because we are committed to helping you heal. And I I see that and go, this is what God does for me every day. And what I'm hearing, so let me just say, at the time of this recording, the only people that have had the book are the launch team. So it's only been in the last two weeks that they've started getting back with me after they read it. I am hearing story after story after story of men and women, old and young, who I have one woman write me and say, I'm 65 years old. And for my whole life, I thought God was mad at me. And for the first time, I think he actually loves me. Yeah, I mean, that's big. She's been so afraid that God was mad at her. And that's why she was suffering. And to discover, no, no, no. Um, I've had people tell me, and this is a repeating theme is it's like I'm reading my story on the page. It's like I'm reading my words. Uh, I've had many people thank 
me for being brave enough to tell the truth because I don't hold anything back, right? So I'm like, if we're going to create a safe space to have these honest faith conversations, then somebody has to go first and that someone has to be me. So I talk about dealing with a, a slagging will to live. I mean, it's hard to deal with chronic pain. Uh, I talk about my struggle with prayer, you know, feeling like God is far away. I talk about some of these real things. But at the end of all of these struggles, there's always hope because I keep coming back to what the facts, right? Let's build an arsenal of evidence of God's presence with us, his heart for us. Uh, I had one gentleman write me that heard me speak on this subject, and he's a truck driver. And he was uh, standing the radio stations looking for some rock and roll and kind of accidentally landed on the interview I was doing. He said he always turns the station away from anything religious. The last thing he wants to listen to is something religious. Well, he didn't know I was religious when I was talking until about 20 minutes into it. And by then he was hooked and couldn't stop. He said, he said, um, I've been having these weird experiences with God lately. I don't know what he's doing and what he's up to. But it's it's left an imprint on me. And thank you for that. Wow. Wow. Those are just a sample. Uh, And and all of this, every single one of us has some kind of trauma of differing degrees and differing flavors. But we've had some kind of loss. And in that place of loss, we can either we can either lose our faith or we can find it. But there's no middle ground. So we get to decide in those moments, do we really believe that God is good and that he loves us or not? And my hope is through the pages of Relentless that the facts of God's affection and presence are so clear that there's really no choice for you, that you just run with everything to his love. Wow. Wow. So can you kind of share with us, where are you at today as you're sharing this message with, um, more and more people. I mean, I'm starting with your launch team, but it's about to be in, you know, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the general population's hands. Um, you're living this out, modeling like the goodness and kindness of God, but giving your your children who are also still navigating this space to mm-hmm. ask questions. I mean, what does day-to-day look like now? I mean, because I think for so many of us, like you said, no one's immune to pain. Everyone's going to experience trauma in some expression. Um, How do you move forward um, years beyond, you know, the initial incident? Absolutely. Well, at some point, you know, all of us have to decide uh, with these hard experiences, right? And this is true personally and our familial relationships as well as professionally. We have to decide these obstacles, suffering, pain, difficulty, if it's going to defeat us, define us, or develop us. If it defeats us, we quit, right? We just quit. We stop living. We stop working. Uh, It would make sense for me as a a woman who has a speech disability to give up my speaking career. I mean, there are people who don't like to listen to me because of my lisp, and I get it. It's fair. But I refuse to let this defeat me. Uh, I have made a decision. I'm not going to let this defeat me. The second option is that it defines us. In other words, we get defined by our pain. I do not want people to see me as a cancer victim. That is not going to define me. I don't even want people to see me defined by my speech disability. That is an element in my story, as is divorce and other things, but that does not define me. But there are people, we all know of people who are so defined by the most horrible thing that's ever happened to them that they can never live beyond it. So you can be defeated or defined, or you can be developed. And that's where I'm choosing to be right now is to go, okay, 
uh, I, I don't want this to be wasted. I don't want all of this suffering and pain and difficulty to be wasted. Okay, God, so what do I need to learn here? How can I be different as a result? How can I lean into this pain? How can I cry my eyes out some days and yet still get up tomorrow and trust you with what's next? There's no more bootstraps anymore. I'm not bootstrapping myself. I don't have any bootstraps. They broke a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) But I can take a day at a time. I can lean into the reality of God's presence. I can trust me. I can trust him that he's going to give me for today what I need and that somehow he's not going to waste all of this. He's going to use it to develop me. And that's kind of what's happening. So to get you caught up to today, uh, it's such a strange thing. My speech is not perfect anymore. I used to have a great radio voice. (laughs) I don't anymore. And yet my business is doing better than it ever has been. And I don't think it's because I'm working harder. I think it's because I just am more clear about what I'm about. Wow. Wow. Well, to piggyback on that, I mean, it seems like, I mean, I I would venture to say, I'm sure having, you know, tongue cancer feels like an attack on your identity. Did you navigate that feeling? I mean, it's it's what you do, (laughs) but here you are. My second book was all about identity for that reason, because how do you identify as a, you know, I'm not really, am I a speaker? You know, can I be a speaker who doesn't speak very well? How do I identify myself as a woman, as a mom? You know, I used to be a great cook, but I can't taste food very well anymore. You know, all of that. I used to be a runner, but running is very hard when you don't have a tongue uh, and you can't swallow and everything else. So, yeah, identity. Absolutely. And I wish I could say it was like a one and done. I just learned it and moved on it. It's every day. Yeah. I mean, every day I have to wake up and I have to kind of lay this at the cross and say, okay, God, I feel insecure about this. It's humiliating to show up and talk funny. Uh, it's hard to eat around people, all that. But I'm just going to, I can't carry that humiliation. So help me, help me find a way to care about the person in front of me more than I care about my own humiliation. Wow. And so having had that attack on your identity, and then like you just said, your business is thriving more than it ever has. And it's a business that are around writing, speaking, communications. Um, how how did <laughs> so you get ironic, there? Yeah, well, how did you get there? Because I think, you know, no matter what experiences we have, I mean, I've had, this has been my year, uh, a very different um, route, but I have felt leveled. Um, and I felt like God has said, if you'll trust me, like what we will rebuild together is going to be even better. But it has been a major reworking of my identity, my identity yes. around work. Um, who am I? You know, I, it is, it's been kind of wild, but I'm noticing, um, I'm noticing that I, the more I lean into just trusting God, um, easier said than done. Some days I'm like an anxiety ball spiraling. And some right days I'm okay. You. We'll you know? have to meet someday when we're both anxiety balls. That will be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could, you could hear uh, the narrative of Final Destination in my head. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I would love to hear because I think we've probably got some listeners, myself included, who have, have felt leveled and like, okay, the, the rug has been pulled out from me, from under me again. And how can it, how can I ever repair this? But here you are, you know, in a place even more accelerated. Is that the word I'm looking for than before after the biggest attack on your identity you could imagine? Like, can you encourage us on that? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there's several things that I, 
I do, and again, this is a daily, I mean, some days are, it's, it's really a moment by moment. If you want to ask my husband, y'all can call him and he'll let you know how often I melt down and cry and all of that. So it's still very, very real. But if you're there, if you feel leveled, first of all, you gotta, you've got to acknowledge it. You can't pretend like this hasn't happened. I love how you are just saying it out loud here on the podcast, Kelsey, that this year I feel leveled. I mean, it's just, I feel like I'm turned inside out, upside down. And that's where I'm at. You got to, you got to state it. This is where I'm at. This is what's happening. This is how I feel. Uh, And noticing it, acknowledging it and saying out loud is so important. So our bodies here, I get all weird on brain science, but your brain operates like a smoke detector. It lets you know of danger. It is wired to let you know of danger. So if it feels and senses something's not right, if you don't pay attention to it, the smoke detector is going to keep going off. You have to acknowledge it. So notice it, acknowledge it. Then second, you have to connect, right? You cannot do this in isolation. When things are hard, uh, we tend to hold up or we try to minimize it or make it better than what it is. And what we really need to do is invite a person into it. So obviously some of that is you pray, you invite God into it, but we also need flesh and blood people. That's why he gave us more than one human on the planet. So tell one trusted person that, gosh, I'm not okay right now. Uh, This is what I'm feeling. I am overwhelmed. I'm not okay. Uh, Isolation is the worst thing that you can do. So reach out and say, hey, this is where I'm at. This is not going to feel better by the morning. So I just need somebody to know. And I just need to know I can tell you when I'm not okay. Yeah. And then, you know, second or third, I tell people you have to move. So sometimes we get in a thought loop or we get in a negative pattern of thinking and we literally need to actually physically move to break the thought loop. So if you're having just a bad moment or a bad evening where things are looking really just horrible, (laughs) sometimes I just need to interrupt the thought loop by doing something different. Occasionally that's going for a walk or a run or, or dancing to music in my office, which I would never make you guys suffer through. (laughs) Um, Or it can be reading a novel or playing solitaire on your phone. It doesn't really matter. The point is to shift. You got to do something different. Uh, And then I, I tell myself this, (laughs) you know, I talk to myself a lot, but I think that's important. We have quite a narrative going on in our heads, but I will tell myself, this will not last forever. This will not last forever. I will not feel this way forever. feels bad right now. It feels like there's no end in sight, but this will not last forever. If you, if you love Jesus, that is so absolutely true because the day is coming when there will be no pain, no suffering, no problems. So that you can very truly say this will not last forever. But we all know life ebbs and flows. Chances are you'll even feel a little bit better by tomorrow, but this will not last forever. And remind yourself of that. I also like to take in consideration extraneous factors. So, you know, if I'm hungry, you know, the whole HALT acronym, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, what's going on? What needs attention? What needs attention? Do I need to, do I need to get more sleep? Uh, do I need to go out to a concert with my best friends? Do I, you know, what is it that I need right now and pay attention? Uh, and paying attention to sometimes those extraneous circumstances, those tiny things that we think are important are actually the most important. I totally agree. I even, even piggybacking off of when you said move, like my kind of big, my big 
thing when I'm feeling like I just even stuck create creatively, but also just in a rough moment of anxiety or stress um, or just dread of worst case scenario. My my go to is going for a drive and listening to a podcast or music, oh, yeah. and it Absolutely. it totally resets me. Um, and I'm not talking just in kind of hard moments. I'm talking about really hard moments, and it really does help. Like that movement yes. piece is yeah. so important in my own life. And sometimes we don't have enough executive function to do something big. It has to be small, but mm-hmm. fine, do something small. Yep. Get up and go have a sandwich. <laughs> I mean, go walk around the house, turn on, I mean, just something. Sometimes we just have to do something and then we build off of that. Yeah. And then the only other thing I would advise too, and this is, this is so critical, um, we look at the things that happen as the worst thing that could happen. So I want to reframe these losses. Now this is hard. Okay. So, uh, you know, when we lose somebody we love or like for me, you know, there were so many different losses, but you know, to sit there and go, I have lost my speech. I will never talk normal again. I'll never be able to sing. I used to sing solos and think I'll never be able to sing again. I'll never know what it tastes like to have a chocolate cake again, you know, all of that. Or I can sit there and reframe it and say, okay, uh, this actually creates a unique opportunity I wouldn't get anywhere else. Now, I first have to cry and grieve and maybe throw a play or two about all the bad things. But once I get done being sad about all the things, wait a second, I have a unique opportunity here that most people don't have. Um, I heard from a mom just last week, week before, who said she heard me doing a presentation. And recently she gave birth to a child with a cleft lip and palate. And when she saw me standing on stage giving a presentation, she finally had hope for her child that they could have a normal life. Wow. I would have never had the opportunity to experience that kind of connection with the mother of a cleft palate if I hadn't lost part of my mouth. Right? Right. So as you, when you have these years where you're leveled, and this is true for you, Kelsey, you sit there and go, man, I hate these circumstances. They're terrible. And you can cry and pound your fist. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) Once Once you're done with that, go, all right, there's an opportunity here that I would not get any other way. Help me to have my eyes open to see what it is. Help me to see the people that will be reached, the connections that will happen, the relationships that will build, or even the own personal development in my own heart that won't happen in spite of the circumstances, but they come as a direct result of the suffering. When that happens, then suffering, as bad as it ends, turns out to be this weird, bizarre, extraordinary gift. Mm Man, already, even this year, I'm like, I wouldn't take this year back. It's been one of the harder years of my life, Um, but I wouldn't take it back because I can see what God's cultivating in me is so deep and rooted, and um, it's not been fun. I've not enjoyed it a lot of the time, Um, Mm -hmm. although God has shown me, you know, my dread of pain. I mean, as a seven, I... If I anticipate pain on the horizon, I will dig my feet in, grit my <laughs> teeth, ball up my fist, and it's like, okay, if I have to, I'm ready, you know. But I will dread any semblance of pain, emotional, physical, you name it. And this year has been very emotionally painful, um, but it showed me I can I can have joy and pain yeah. intermingled. Yes. And that was a big lesson for, for next time because, you know, I'm sure at 29, this is not the hardest thing I'll ever go through, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, 
it, it's shown me that, you know, joy and pain can be intermingled and that I wouldn't take this year back, you know? Um, same, same. I would say the same. I mean, there, it is really hard to live in my body every day. It is so painful to talk and everything else. And yet at the same time, I cannot imagine going back and erasing this because uh, what it has done in my heart, what his, the healing that has brought in me emotionally, spiritually, relationally, the opportunities it's presented, the connections. I mean, the riches that I have gained from this far outweigh the suffering. I would never wish it. I would never wish for the suffering, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and change it. Wow. I was going to ask you because, you know, I can say with emotional pain, I wouldn't take back this year, but you have navigated next level physical pain every day for very extended periods of time. And I, I it would be very fair of you to say, no, I wouldn't wish this on it. I wouldn't <laughs> wish it for it again. Well, I, I hope I never experience it again. I can tell you that. I mean, right now, part of the, the, my fear factor isn't, I'm not afraid of dying anymore, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to meet Jesus any moment. It's, it's that part's fine, but the suffering between now and Jesus face is, it, it scares me. That's the hard part. So I would never want it again. And yet I also have, have grown in my trust of him that if, and when that more suffering is on the horizon, that I trust that he's going to be there too. I mean, he hasn't failed me wow. through all of this. I see his hand everywhere. And if he's been so faithful through all of this, uh, he won't stop. I mean, he won't, he won't not be there the next time he will. Wow. Oh my gosh, Michelle, I can't wait to read your book. Can you tell us a little snapshot, a little snippet of what our listeners can find in your book? Because they need to go grab it because I think we can all learn from you. And I'm just excited. Oh, thank you for that. This is, yeah, this book's close to my heart because it's basically, I I sliced myself open and just poured everything out. So, (laughs) well, I mean, it's, it's my, my writing style is narrative and memoir. So I, I write lots of stories. You will get a lot of great stories. I've been told that you can't put it down once you start it, but it dives really deep into exploring um, our own stories and God's story. And one of the best parts of the book is uh, there are 12 chapters. And it mirrors the story of Joshua crossing the Jordan with the Israelites. And after they cross this horrible, raging river, God sends them back to the middle of the river to pull out 12 stones. And the reason he has them pull out 12 stones is he wants them to set it up as as an altar on the side of the river. So that way, when they face more difficulties in the future, they will remember God's faithfulness and deliverance in the middle of their struggle. And so throughout the book, I tell the reader at the end of each chapter to identify a stone in their own life and to build their own altar. And so by the end of the book, the reader will have their own 12 stone altar of God's presence in their story. So that way, no matter what comes today, tomorrow or 10 years from now, they will never forget that God is indeed with them. Oh, man, I need that. I'm so excited to read this. I, you know, to those listening, you can get it at anywhere books are sold, I assume. Yes, right, Michelle? exactly. Amazon, anywhere. You can find it. <laughs> well, once November 12th is here, you can find it just about anywhere, definitely. And if you catch it before then, you can pre-order. Michelle, it has been such a joy interviewing you today and chatting with you. I feel like I've learned so much. I am definitely going to be trying to hang out with you here in Denver. But yes. 
in the meantime, where can everyone find you? Because I think our listeners are going to want to keep up with what you're doing and your story. Yes, where you're absolutely. The best way to find me is on my website, michellecachette.com. That's where I have everything. Tons of free resources that go along with the book, a reader's guide. I've got a 15 episode podcast that goes along with the book. We've got all kinds of goodies there for you that are free. But if you really want to keep up on my day-to-day life, Instagram's the place to go. I have... Um, a really great fun time on Instagram. So on stories, on my feed, a combination of really good inspirational uh, truth, but also I'm a humor girl. So there's lots of humor there as well. Oh, I love the humor. Well, I am just so thrilled to have you on today. And thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Kelsey. It's been my privilege. Hey, don't go yet. I would love it if you go over to iTunes right now and leave a review. I love hearing your feedback and it really makes a difference in getting the Radiant Podcast name out there. And while you're at it, why don't you subscribe and then share this episode on Facebook or Instagram or wherever your social media platform is of choice. Lastly, I'd love to keep up with each other. Come find me on Instagram at Kels Chapman and let's get to know each other.